Hey everyone, I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough. So, last week, you all met the amazing France Francois. I think France's mission of re-educating Haitians and Dominicans about the history of Hispaniola is so important to understand the relationship between these two neighboring nations today. But that history of anti-Haitianismo and anti-Blackness doesn't just apply to folks who live on the island. It informs how generations of Dominicans identify people like my pops, a man who was born in New York and spent summers visiting family on the island, people like me, a guy who visited for the first time in 2022, and people like my guest today. I grew up in a Dominican family that didn't overtly talk about race, but like was always talking about race. This is Dr. Saudi Garcia, an anthropologist who actually works with France at Incultured Co., She helps bring the Dominican point of view at the Decolonizing Hispaniola workshops we learned about last week. Saudi was born in the DR and moved to New York when she was 10 years old. She says that living here has forced her to think about her own race in a totally different way than she had done in the DR. And now she identifies not as Afro-Caribbean or Latina, but just black. Today, I am sitting down with Saudi to talk about that. How has being Dominican and coming to America shaped her racial identity? How might it have shaped my pops? And is it time for me to start thinking differently about my own identity? Stick around, y'all. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. One of the most beautiful things to me about my own family and so many Latin American families is how diverse we are. My mom is light-skinned. She's Colombian. My dad's a little darker. My sister is somewhere in the middle. Me, I might be the darkest, but when you look at my whole extended family, we got people repping every shade. It's like a whole rainbow made of brown. Saudi says with her family back in the DR, it's the same. But she says, sometimes all those different shades of brown made thinking about identity kind of confusing. Growing up, what kind of words would you and your people use to describe yourself and your race? Growing up, um, it was very interesting. Like you learn the culture and you learn the language around race. And sometimes that language isn't even explicit, not in the way that it is here in the U.S. For example, um, everyone in my family is like from, you know, very diverse. So from shades of very light to shades of deeper dark. I was kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but my baby brother, he's darker skinned. So there was always a conversation about him being darker skinned. Unfortunately, it wasn't always like a negrito lindo conversation. It was sometimes not positive. Negrito lindo, negrito fino, negrito bello. Those are Spanish phrases that basically mean like dark and handsome. It can be a compliment. And I also kind of saw the way that people in my neighborhood talked about my grandfather, who is a dark-skinned man, 
and sort of were belittling him oftentimes. And so I grew up around a lot of that. The words that we would use sometimes would be affirmative and positive, like, ah, ese negrito lindo, negrito fino, negrito bello. Or they would be just extremely, extremely negative. And so that was sort of one set of conversation that was happening. And then the other set of conversations that I was witnessing was around the Haitian members of our community, because I grew up in the hood and people were in proximity to each other. That it was a street that was like a typical Dominican street. So you had, you know, folks sort of living mixed together. We didn't have a lot of distance because we were all, we were working class, working poor people. I would see the way that people in my street treated the Haitian community members. And that's where I really started to learn about Dominicans' ideas of race, not just within the household, within like our home, but also in the street, seeing how Haitian community members were treated. And so I have like one really vivid memory growing up of like, um, I was at my school, I went to like a really small hundred student school that was really kind of in someone's house. Like in the DR, we do that. We just like put the school in the house. And, you know, we were playing in the garage, basically the marquesina of the house. And I saw this little girl who must have been at least like seven and she was Haitian and she was on the other side of the fence. And I was like, why is she not in school? Like, what is she doing out there? I remember that vividly because that was like an unspoken, it wasn't a conversation. I didn't really have anyone to ask to to ask about, but I understood that there was something happening there that made a barrier between me and her. Like there was literally a fence between us. Your brother, I'm curious, younger, older? Younger. Could you see the effects then? Or was it only is it only now with sight that you can see them? Did he ever feel them? Have you two talked about that? So we have talked about it. So in my own racial awakening, because I, you know, I came to the U.S. and there was a different conversation happening around, around race. And I wanted to understand, like, where do Dominicans fit into that conversation? So, you know, I became very active within the Dominican community movements and spaces, trying to talk about race, trying to have that conversation. And, you know, I would go home and for Christmas, for like the summer, and, you know, try to engage him in those types of conversations. But he grew up in a very different context. So it wasn't always translating. It wasn't always clear, like what exactly it was that I was trying to say. And like, sometimes it came across even as a little pushy, uh, as a little bit kind of like US focus, you know, like this trying to embrace our Blackness and our features and affirming, like in an affirming and loving way. But I understood that telling an 18-year-old that there's there's these differences and like we need to figure out how to address them. How do we talk about this? Like might have been really intense, right? Someone who comes from a, who has had a different context. More recently, we've been able to have different kinds of conversations about it, right? And I know that sounds a little vague, but essentially it's like, it was a moment of me having my awakening and being like, hey, like you know, like Black Lives Matter, but in DR. And it was like, oh, but this isn't the same context. We're not going to have the same conversation. I think it has impacted my brother for sure, because being told like you have to perform a certain aesthetic to be accepted as a Black person, you have to be like negro fino or negro lindo. I think it does have a toll. And not just up to, I'm not talking specifically just about my brother. I think in general, you have to comport and behave in a certain way 
that makes you respectable. I think that's a sort of kind of broader thing about our community too. 90% of Dominicans descend from enslaved West Africans. In fact, this was one of the first countries where Africans were imported and enslaved in the New World. But that doesn't change the fact that most Dominicans don't identify as Black. Most prefer to acknowledge their European or indigenous heritage, just like my pops, who told me when I interviewed him for my other podcast, Ruby Rosa, which you can go listen to now, that he is registered as white on his license. How do you identify? White, brown, what? How do I see myself? I see myself as a white person. I see myself as William Rivas, born in New York City and raised as a Latin American, my American culture. That's it. That was my dad who told me this when I interviewed him for Ruby Rosa podcast. And to be honest, I wasn't so surprised. So why do you think someone like my pops, this 60-something-year-old Dominican man, might identify as white? Yeah. For folks in, in that elder generation, there's so much trauma associated with embracing Blackness. You know, the story of the formation of a contemporary, like, 20th century Dominican Republic, 21st century Dominican Republic, is really a story of attempting and, like, really forcefully stamping out our Blackness as a nation. There's so many historical examples of, like, what the Dominican state did to ensure that people like your father like identify as white from burning the drums of folks who are practicing Afro-Dominican traditions and, and religious practices to ensuring that there isn't a category called Black to use in the census to ensuring that the textbooks don't appropriately cover the African contribution and the foundations of Dominican society to not counting or reporting specific racial makeup of the nation or the how those particular groups are doing um, socially and socioeconomically. Like, there is a long history of why your father would identify in that way. And that's just over the 20th century, like the things that the Dominican state has done. And so that totally makes sense. There wouldn't be a particularly different outcome for your father given like the sort of context and history. And I don't have to know what your father looks like to know that like that is the context that he grew up in. Now, if y'all are wondering if my pops looks white, he does not. He looks like your average brown man. You know, tan skin, dark hair, not white. And my abuela, my dad's mom, she's even darker. My grandmother is uh, pretty black. She's a black woman. And... I tell this story about my pops' friend, uh, also a black man, reaching out to her and saying, you know, look at my beautiful black sister one day and uh, her sort of losing her mind, you know, like burning up from the inside. You know, I'm not black, she she said after. And I remember that being one of the early moments in my childhood thinking, oh, there's something, there's something weird here. There's some, there's some, uh, something distorted that like this man was not insulting her. This man was saying, you know, we are we are together in this thing, uh, and she didn't want to be in there. Like she had, she did not want to identify with it one bit. So again, also not knowing so much of this history, uh, the burning of the drums, the not having black on the census, the literally the erasure of blackness. Hearing that my father didn't want to identify or chose not to identify was not a huge surprise, even though I didn't 
no. You know, it was like a surprise and not a surprise all at the same time. You do not identify as white. You identify as black. Can you tell me the story of how you came to that moment? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, my identity has gone an evolution and I can definitely name the steps in that as, you know, when I first immigrated, I was identified as Dominican, right? And I came to New York and that was my ethnicity or rather my nationality. But there wasn't a conversation about how I was perceived racially. Um, In high school, there wasn't a conversation. So it's not really till I go to college. I went to Brown between 2010 and 2014. And I participated in a program for just for students to, from first generation backgrounds, students who are working class, students who are Black, queer, to come together and like name the things that we had not been able to have a conversation around in our previous communities. So like name things like racism, name things like classism, name homophobia and 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 its dynamics. And the idea behind that program was that we needed to be able to have language to talk about these things. And up to that point, even though I experienced the world as a racialized person, I didn't have a lot of language around race because there wasn't that conversation in my house. That was the first moment that I really became very curious around who am I racially? Like, how am I perceived, right? How do people see me? And how does that shape my experience of the world? And so it was through a lot of exploration that I started to really understand and connect to the Black heritage, or rather the Black radical tradition globally, not just in the U.S., but also the Black radical tradition of my island. So I began to realize there is something about, there's something politically important about me identifying as Black, because that is how in the U.S. I'm perceived. If I didn't tell someone I'm Dominican, they might read me just as a Black person, as a Black American person who is light-skinned and has, you know, looser hair, but still a Black American person. I realized that like I was at a crossroads. I could continue identifying as Dominican or even identifying as Afro-Latinx, which Latinx itself is a term that was supposed to align Latin American people, people of the Southern continent with whiteness, right? It's like, oh, you're you're of Latin descent. You're of somehow Roman connection. So even the term Latino and Latinx has it in itself a bent towards whiteness. Hey, I've never heard this. Tell me more about that. So in the 19th century, you have this sort of burst of liberation that happens all across South America. You have, after the Haitian Revolution, Haitians link up with folks in in that sort of Gran Colombia, Venezuela region, which is today Colombia and Venezuela. And they support the liberation movements of those countries to free themselves of Spain. And so this thing happens in the 19th century across the region where, you know, suddenly you have Colombia, you have Venezuela who are free, the Dominican Republic waged wars throughout, you know, like up until 1865 to get rid of the Spanish empire. Then you have the same thing happening in Puerto Rico and Cuba and Brazil. So you have this sort of massive wave of liberation um, and nation building across Latin, across the region. Some of the work that happened during that time was finding a, a term, finding language to sort of understand this region of the world, right? And so the idea of Latin America, even the terms, you are Latin. Why wasn't it 
Africanus America. You are of Latin descent. You are connected to the motherland, to this continent, and let's sustain a relationship with this continent. So there was that. And then even the term American, Americo Vespucci was a, a colonizer and an explorer. So why is it that a region that is really made up of a diverse amount of Black and Indigenous people named, both of his words are named after Anglo-Sized sort of Eurocentric um, names. And then below that is sort of just the statistics of how people of color across Latin America have done over the centuries. And you'll see a lot of inequality in that way. Damn, what a surprise to learn that the word Latinx has roots in whiteness. I had no idea. Some of y'all are probably already thinking of using another term to identify. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Saudi is going to tell us about the reactions she has gotten from her family and other Dominican folks when she identifies as a black woman. I also ask her whether I should reconsider how I identify myself. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. And we are back with Dr. Saudi Garcia. Growing up, I was always made fun of for my hair. My family would joke around that I was adopted because I had pelo malo, bad hair in Spanish. It's thick, curly, Afro-Latino, textured hair that I am in love with now. But as a kid, I did not love it. I considered it bad because it wasn't straight or thin. The brown women in my community in Queens, they were also obsessed with straight, silky hair. This is why they spent hours in a hair salon burning their hair until it was straight, burning their curls away. They were trying to get closer to whiteness and hide the African that is braided within them. Saudi saw this at an early age in the DR, too. I knew I was Black from when I was a child, and nobody had to say that to me, but it was through reflection that I'm like, oh, there are little moments that showed me that I was not white. For example, like my auntie was a godmother of these beautiful, or or girls that were named as beautiful, these two girls, um, young girls, like they must have been like seven or eight. I was around that same age. And they were very light, fair. They had like straight hair with bangs. And they were always like named as like these beautiful girls. Like they're so pretty. And I was like, um, I'm pretty. And it was like, okay, you know, like as a child, you know, you're like, I want to be seen in this way too. And it was sort of like they were exalting their whiteness, right? They were exalting their whiteness. And by doing that, it let me know that I was not white. So like, even if I didn't have the language that folks in the U.S. deploy and that even I deploy, right? Like I knew that I was not white. So I think there's also like that dynamic in our community. And because we know we're not white and we're unprotected people, 
we have to find ways to get closer to whiteness. And that is something that is very troubling and has been a pattern for us too. Yes, this is definitely a pattern that I have seen in my own family. Elders in mi familia would always tell us, don't date someone darker than you. Sal con alguien que se vea más fino. Date someone with lighter skin. And that's because many think that the closer you are to whiteness, the better life you'll have. Now, knowing that Saudi saw this kind of thing growing up too, I was really curious how her family feels about her identifying as a black woman now. She says that it's something she sort of explained to them in stages. Because if I said I'm black, just the way that I that you and I are talking, like here in this UX context where it's like black, white, Latinx, like they would have been like, very confused. But I started doing certain things that were challenging for them. I started making it a policy that we had to shift anti-Haitian language. We don't talk about our Haitian community members like that. We don't talk about people like that. And people, so my mom's side, who I spend more time with, they were like, oh, you're Saudi. Can't say that, you know? (laughs) So at a certain point, like my Blackness and my identification became linked to like practicing within my family how to shift our consciousness, how to like not drink the Kool-Aid of anti-Blackness and anti-Haitianism. That was an opportunity, like that was exciting, but it was also very scary because I feel like I don't want to make people uncomfortable. I don't want them to feel like I'm policing them, but I also, but we also cannot continue doing this, doing this in this way. What kind of reactions have you gotten from let's say some black Dominican folks when you say you're black or other Dominican folks, or what about black folks, you know, like African-Americans? Have you ever gotten any, is it always positive? Is it negative? what you get? Yeah, I, I think so among Dominicans, like for example, when I told my father, who's a dark skinned man that I identify as black, he was kind of confused because I'm not black American. In our culture, the term for black would be like negra, right? We would say a word like, you know, maybe maybe not specifically negra. You might actually say something more like like prieta. Prieta is the word that really, really culturally translates to black. Um, we don't say the word negra actually, except if it's like negra linda. But it's not a political term, right? I think folks are now reclaiming prieta as a political term. And so when I said I was black, he was like prieta, but you're not prieta. So I'm so confused, right? But you're also not Black American. So like, what are you actually saying here? And so it takes a little bit of a political education process, even within our own most intimate familial relationships to say, I'm Black because of our culture and our history and our heritage. We are at the center of like the Black radical tradition in the Americas when we think about it. Well, people in the U.S. were fighting for for the end of slavery. We were kicking out the Spanish Empire out of the Caribbean. We're like the reason why that empire disintegrated, right? We were like, you're not going to succeed here. We're never going to be enslaved ever. And that is the heritage that I come from. Like my ancestors were fighting against the Spanish in 1865. So I named that because it takes a lot of work to be understood. Just this little example, like, he was like, Prieta? Black American? What are you saying? Like, are you confused? And it was like, no. And it's taking me like a decade to be able to name it in this way, to have this conversation. And my hope is that it doesn't take folks in our community a decade 
to understanding themselves politically as as political actors. Do you think every Dominican person should identify as black? I don't think so. Okay. There are white Dominicans. I mean, we've had waves of immigration for after 1865, specifically, um, the, you know, the Dominican state, you know, towards the end of the 19th century goes through a process of really trying to stabilize its population. And by stabilize, I really mean whitened. They realize oh, we have an influx of black migrants coming from the Eastern Caribbean, the British Caribbean. That's why some Dominicans have um, English last names. And so they say, okay, we have to start importing white migrants. And so there's a very concerted effort to outreach to Canary Island folks, to outreach to Italian folks. And so today there's actually a, a large population of Italian Dominicans who um, by, by many accounts are white people. And so I don't think that they should just continue to be invisible under this image of nationalism. Oh, they're just Dominican. It's like, no, they were white immigrants who arrived with a degree of privilege that skin color gives. And they were also given land allotments in many cases by the Dominican state to sort of become settlers. And so I don't think every Dominican should identify as black because there are white Dominicans who have had a lot of privilege. Um, if anybody's watching Gordita Chronicles on, on HBO, like that was a point that um, I, I brought up. I was like, oh, this, the, the father is Italian Dominican. He is white and he is a person who has had outsized privilege. And he even says that. And so I think it would be disingenuous to say that every Dominican is black. I find myself identifying as brown. I'm half Dominican. I'm half Colombian. I grew up in a melting pot of Queens where I saw a lot of brownness, you know, where I saw everybody and everything. And, you know, my Palestinian homies were brown. My Korean homies was brown. My Pakistani homies was brown. And I felt like what we shared was that brownness. And also, as I've grown older, maybe I understood without knowing the history of, of the Latinx pushing you towards Latinism and whiteness, you know, um, I didn't like the conversation of black versus white. I felt like it excluded me um, in this U.S. conversation about race. Should I reconsider how I identify? This is such a long conversation and I, I can't have a definitive answer. I think you should reconsider more than how you identify what you do. I think that your actions and your practices, to me, like that daily sort of ethical work, I've come to understand that, and maybe this is sort of the anthropologist in me, as like categories have their validity and they are important as to identify with, but our, our actions and our practices are actually what makes up who we are and beyond just your identification. So... A really good friend reminded me of Tatra's phrase that says, we are the daughters and sons and non-binary people of our actions. And I love that quote because we are tied up in what we do, right? Who we are is actually what we do. It's not just how we identify. So I think really retooling your own toolkit around how are you going to intervene in violence in these spaces, how to actually be brown in these spaces responsibly, to me, is like a more interesting conversation than how do you identify individually, right? Because then that gets us into like, ooh, what kind of collective action can we take when we're all sort of disruptive in the same ways? 
beyond our identities, right? What kind of trouble can we make? Can we do that together? We are the daughters and sons and non-binary people of our actions. I'm an actor, writer, and storyteller. This is what I do. These are my actions. And through this platform, I am encouraging y'all to start these conversations that make us uncomfortable at home or wherever you have the space to take up space, to have an open dialogue. And speaking of actions, during our convo, Saudi dropped a few names of books to learn more about today's subject. Learning more is a great first action to take. So here's a reading list to Google. The Borders of Dominicanidad by Lorja Garcia Peña. Dividing Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic's border campaign against Haiti by Edward Palino. And Intro to Dominican Blackness by Silvio Torres Sayan. Go check them out, y'all. Did you grow up in Haiti or the DR? Maybe in another place with a similar history of violence and anti-blackness? What have you learned and unlearned? Please send your thoughts in an email or voice message to brownenough at stitcher.com. Again, that's brownenough at stitcher.com. And if you have a funny joke, send that too. Next time on Brown Enough, we're talking with Kyla Pratt about her experience as a young actor working on a show that had such great representation on and off the camera. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Brendan Burns. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And if you got a minute, leave us a review. A nice one. It goes a long way. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.